This is episode number 14 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. We're distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because as is becoming all too apparent, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media, they have lost their minds. They cannot be objective. And the conservative, now almost completely state-run media, has been compromised and totally co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Hope you've enjoyed the first 13 episodes of the podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. We have over 11,000 Twitter followers at our Twitter handle, which is Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. And once again, in this particular edition of the Individual One Podcast, we're going to begin with a subject that really fits right into our intro. <laughs> I mean, it's important that we always go back to that, and I'm sure people wonder, well, why do you open the show the same way each time? Well, because that sets up why this podcast exists. And so that, that's an incredibly important foundation, and the first story I want to discuss really illustrates that, because it deals with a friend of mine who we've referenced on this program before, Glenn Beck. Now, Glenn Beck, for those who do not know, is one of the leading conservative voices in talk radio. He has his own television network via The Blaze. Uh, And uh, for a long period of time, especially during the Tea Party era, remember that? Remember when Republicans were actually in favor of small government and (laughs) they were constitutionalists and they were against executive overreach? Boy, that was boy, that was a long, long time ago. That was like, uh, oh, seven, eight years ago because Barack Obama was uh, president of the United States. Well, Glenn Beck was considered to be effectively one of the leaders of that movement. He was. I believe he was on the cover of Time magazine. I mean, he was all he was all over the place. He was huge. And then he um, made the decision to be anti-Trump during the wave of 2015, 2016, where Donald Trump effectively had a hostile takeover over the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Glenn Beck did not take part in that. And I have always, before the 2016 election, I'd been rather skeptical of Beck. In fact, I'd even called him a fraud on the air because I had dealt with him a little bit many years ago, but on his radio and television show with a movie I made about the 2008 election called Media Malpractice. And I I have a very skeptical view of media members in general, uh, even on the conservative side, because I've dealt with them all, and almost all of them are at least somewhat fraudulent. And and that was even before Trump. Okay, I mean, I I did not consider them to be legitimate, sincere people or even good people, even before Trump. So I was not surprised that the celebrity portion of the conservative media sold out immediately to Trump because it was in their self-interest to do so, because all they care about is fame and money. That's why they're in this thing. So uh, and, and and Beck is such a good performer that I was inherently almost instinctually distrustful of him. And I had a co-host at the time when I did a nationally syndicated Sunday night radio show, which ended immediately after Trump's victory for obvious reasons. Her name was Leah Brandon, and she was a big Beck fan. And she and I would constantly battle over whether Beck is for real or not. And when Beck made his stand against Trump, and I started to know him a little bit because he invited me on his show a couple times and Eventually, I went down to Dallas, Texas and spent an entire day at The Blaze doing a series of interviews on another story. And some of it was on Trump, but most of it was on another story involving the so-called Penn State scandal from 2011, which I've done an enormous amount of investigation into. And um, and I started to think, okay, here's a guy who's really suffered because of his stance on Trump and he doesn't appear to be backing away from it. I got to give that respect. I have to renew or review my entire perception of Glenn Beck. And during our our time uh, on either each other's shows, I mean, I've been on his show many, many times. He's been very complimentary of, of me at times, like, for instance. Thank you for a conservative actually standing and 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 speaking for principles. Boy, that that was ironic in retrospect. We'll get to why in a moment. And then there's this classic. Uh, John Ziegler. I, I think he's fantastic. What a... What a 
interesting mind he has. And so, you know, I'm not like Trump where the, the only thing that matters is what you've said about me and <laughs> evaluating who you are, but I'm human. So the fact that he was getting me and he was standing uh, up against Trump, against his own self-interest, suffering far more than any of these other conservative media heavyweights, these celebrities uh, were willing to do, that got my respect. And it wasn't just our interviews together and, and some conversations we had when I was in Dallas. We've communicated off the air in, in some pretty heavy-duty circumstances. I don't want to overplay it, but you know, a lot of our interviews have kind of been like therapy sessions, trying to deal with how you can be a conservative in this bizarre world environment where Donald Trump is the leader of not just the Republican Party, but of the free world. And, and so I think I felt like we've gotten to know each other pretty well and have a mutual respect. We're certainly not the same people. That would be boring if we were. Uh, but obviously, over the last year or so, I have seen a, a fairly steady and, and somewhat dramatic movement by Beck towards warming to Donald Trump. Now, I don't have any problem with the idea, and I want to make this clear. I don't have any problem with conservatives praising Trump when he deserves to be praised. I have done it myself, not as much as some others have done, but I do it occasionally. And I've defended Donald Trump against unfair attacks on multiple occasions. I've also said on many occasions that this particular event or news story is not going to hurt him. And I have been vindicated on that like 100 percent of the time. But look, if you want to you want to praise things that he does that you think are good, that's perfectly fine as long as you're also criticizing him for things that he deserves to be criticized for. However, you know, it has been uncomfortable to me to see how far Beck has gone, especially when you consider that look, let's face it, there is an economic incentive to do exactly what someone like Beck is doing. The Blaze suffered greatly because of his position on Donald Trump. They were they had huge layoffs. There was speculation they might go under. They created a merger with Mark Levin's company. I don't know if it's actually Mark Levin's company, but a, a company involving Mark Levin, another guy who totally sold out to Trump after telling me uh, at a talk radio convention in early 2016 that he didn't deserve my criticism because he didn't think that he had sold out to Donald Trump. Well, <laughs> I think I was vindicated fully on that one because Mark Levin is now probably the biggest sellout there is to Donald Trump, far worse than, than Glenn Beck has even imagined uh, being. So, uh, you know, I, I have been very conflicted about what to do regarding Glenn Beck's uh, changing position because I'm a loyal guy, all right? Uh, and I, I don't have many friends because I don't like human beings. Uh, but my, you know, the friends that I have, uh, I am exceedingly loyal to. And because I understand Beck's position probably better than anybody else as far as having empathy for the circumstances of it's not just him. See, that's, that's a really important thing people have to understand when it comes to Glenn Beck. Like with a lot of these media stars, like a Sean Hannity, I'm sure Sean Hannity has people working for him. But if, if Sean Hannity were to go down, he doesn't have his own network of people who will all lose their jobs. You understand that? So Beck has a lot, not as many people as he used to, Beck has a lot of people who are relying on him for their livelihoods at the blaze. And that changes the equation. See, I am more than willing to take bullets when I'm the one taking the bullets. Now that I'm married with kids, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, although it hasn't, my, my wife will be the first one to tell you that it hasn't changed my actual MO or my positions or, or uh, you know, my actions, although she would like to, it to have done so. Um, but it certainly it goes into your thinking. But when it's your family, even in, in some ways, I think your family is even different than people who you, you aren't related to who are working for you. You have an obligation to those people. And because of that, I've had great empathy for Beck's position on Trump and have cut him a lot of slack. And while I've chided him in emails and maybe on Twitter, I've given him some mild criticism or whatever, I've never fully written an article, for instance, at Mediate, where I'm a senior columnist, directly criticizing him, him for his Trump take. Well, that changed today when I wrote a column about something that uh, Beck said on Sean Hannity's show, 
uh, two nights ago, Monday night of this week, where Beck went on Sean Hannity's TV show on Fox News Channel. Important to point out, you know, Beck used to work at Fox News Channel uh, and then left there several years ago. Uh, you know, he and Hannity have always had uh, somewhat of a, a good relationship, I guess. But clearly the, the Trump divide uh, was a chasm there because Sean Hannity is the biggest sycophant there is towards Donald Trump. And for this to happen on Hannity's show, I think, is important for context, because this is the second time recently that Beck went on Sean Hannity. And it really felt to me like it was a confessional, <laughs> like like Beck was going to Sean Hannity, the high priest of Trumpism, uh, to seek absolution for his past sins. That's what it felt like. And that both people were getting uh, you know, what they wanted out of the deal. Hannity was getting the satisfaction of having a prominent never-Trumper acknowledge that they have sinned and that they are uh, repenting for their past sins by acknowledging the uh, the greatness of Donald Trump, while, while Beck was getting absolution from Sean Hannity, the leader of the Trump cult, which then gives the Trump cult permission to go ahead and start listening and watching to Glenn Beck again. Now, I'm not at all certain that this was all part of a cynical plan. Uh, I know Glenn has insisted to me that that's not the case. I would love to take Glenn at his word, but as I told Glenn in an email today in, in response to the column, which bizarrely he liked, uh, I, uh, although it wasn't really that bizarre, I expected him to because it was very fair, uh, and I urge you to check it out. You can find it at my Twitter feed, which is uh, Zygmunt Freud, or at the Individual One Podcast uh, Twitter feed. We tweeted that out this morning before we taped the, this particular podcast. But um, the reality here is that Beck insists that this was not a contrived business decision. And I'm open to that idea. You can sometimes do what you sincerely believe, and it just happens to dovetail with your financial interest. That's certainly possible. Or there's a third alternative, which is what I suggested to him in email, that your business-slash-financial self-interest is subconsciously clouding your perception of reality. That's human nature. That's the way human beings work. That doesn't mean you're being insincere. That just means that your perception of what's happening is clouded because you want it to be. You need it to be, even if that's just subconscious. So let's get to what Beck actually said. So in this second confession-like appearance on Sean Hannity, uh, Beck uh, says to Sean Hannity that it will be officially the end of the country as we know it if Donald Trump is not reelected. That's almost a direct quote. That's that's almost a direct quote. That it'll be officially the end of the United States as we know it if Donald Trump is not reelected. It's just flat out ridiculous. Now, um and now, well here's the part of that that's not ridiculous, okay? And I and I say this in the column I wrote for media, which I urge you to check out. Google it if you need to. I it's not ridiculous to think that the left has created the perception that the progressive elements of the Democratic Party are about to take over, that they're going to nominate some whack job as president. And if they get control of both the House and the Senate and the presidency, that Katie bar the door, they're going to destroy everything about this country. We're going to turn into a socialist nation. They're going to fundamentally alter everything they possibly can in this massive childlike overreaction to the Trump era. That is certainly based in reality. Now, I hope it's not based in fact, but it is certainly a possibility. And I myself, as I say in this column, I myself, as, as, as anti-Trump as I am in, in concept, there are several, I don't know what the number is, I haven't sat down and done that, but there are at least a, a few high-profile Democratic presidential candidates who, if they're the nominee and they pick a bad vice presidential uh, selection, I may find myself rooting for Donald Trump to be reelected with extreme hesitancy. <laughs> but it's it's theoretically possible. I would at least consider that. But here's the problem with what Beck's doing. It's way too early to be coming to that conclusion. 
Unless, of course, you're doing it for other reasons. Because we don't even know who that nominee or the vice presidential nominee are going to be. We don't know what the ticket looks like. And so I, you know, I, it's funny because I'm a, a cynic. I'm a pessimist. Yet I can sometimes be a little naive because I'm, I want to be hopeful. And there's still a, at least a chance. I don't think it's over 50 percent, by the way. But there's a chance the Democrats are going to come to their senses and, you know, eschew this instinctual uh, tendency that they have to always, always overplay their hand and, you know, go with their emotions and nominate some nut job. They might nominate, for instance, a Joe Biden, who it looks like he's going to run. And, and let's be clear, Joe Biden is no savior. Joe Biden is a gaffe machine. Joe Biden is a liberal although he's not as liberal as most of the rest of the Democratic presidential field. But here's what Joe Biden could theoretically be. A a fairly safe haven for everyone to just regroup. That's what I'm looking for here. Just, you know what? If if you gave me Joe Biden as president and, you know, even a remotely decent vice presidential nominee and... Republicans still controlled the Senate, even if it was 51 votes. I don't give a damn. As long as you gave me something like that, I would take that in a heartbeat. Heartbeat, because then we could at least start to rid ourselves of this Trump cancer. We could have at least four years of of somewhat a sense of normalcy. I'm not suggesting that it's going to be anything close to a panacea, but I think we need a safe haven to recover from this. And and maybe as conservatives and Republicans, we don't even deserve that. That's better than what we deserve, because frankly, and I know this is part of what's driving the the liberal passion in the very progressive direction for, for nominating and electing Donald Trump. We deserve far worse than that scenario. We really do. I get that. I get the the thirst for vengeance for having perpetrated this upon the country. I hope there's a chance that cooler heads will prevail. Do I believe that? No, because the optimistic view of politics is almost always wrong now. But to me, we at least have to give that a chance. We at least have to know who the Democratic nominee is before we start saying, that Trump must be reelected or else the whole country is officially going to be destroyed. Uh, and there's another element of this, which might even be more important, which I told back in an email. And, and one of the more interesting things about this column is that I, I asked Glenn to respond to my objections to his statement. And he, he provided me with a very interesting quote, which is how I end the, the media column, which I wrote today. And, and the second part of my objection is, I think that, and I, and I bet Glenn is even, I bet Glenn didn't even think about it in this way, and I'll bet Glenn agrees with me, although he didn't say this specifically in his response, but it's just too logical for someone like Glenn not to get this. And, and the, the, the part of this equation that I haven't seen anybody fully uh, understand or articulate, other than maybe myself, is that when you reelect Trump, you're not reelecting the same person you elected in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. You're reelecting a child who now, because there will be no uh, accountability at all, because he'll never face reelection again, at least hopefully, unless he changes the Constitution somehow, which would be highly, highly unlikely given the the political realities, but you're now, you're taking a child. Let's face it. Donald Trump is a child. And now you're removing all restrictions on that child. You're removing any concern about facing the voters. He's not going to give a rat's ass about a second midterm election. Do you think Donald Trump will care at all about how Republicans do in his sixth year as president? Are you kidding me? I mean, can we be serious? Donald Trump wouldn't, in fact, he would love to see 
the, the Republicans that he'll be pissed at viewing them as rhinos because they didn't support him enough and make you know give him everything he wanted he will he will he will actually be thrilled in my view to see democrats crush republicans in his sixth year because what does he have to lose nothing he's already not going to be able to get anything through congress anyway because democrats will control at least the house of representatives and by you know 2022 probably the senate now, I guess he might care whether or not he could be impeached. But by that point, who cares? It's, it, it, it's His two terms are basically almost up. So all he's going to care about is whether or not if he's still going to be alive at the end of 2024 and whether or not he can be uh, prosecuted by the, the president that uh, that replaces him or the, the Justice Department of the president that replaces him. Although Kamala Harris is already promising that if she's the president, she will prosecute him in 2021. But that's a totally different deal. That's if, if this is, I'm talking about if Trump wins re-election, as Glenn Beck is saying he must, or else the, the country is officially toast. So I think this is an incredibly important point, and I'm sure it's a theme that will continue on uh, with regard to the individual one podcast and in my writings. You cannot evaluate Trump based upon these four years. The next four years would be a child with no restrictions, knowing they cannot be punished for four years, and without, for instance, the Russia investigation hanging over his head. Do you realize how much the Russian investigation, while it bothers the living crap out of him and he complains about it all the time, actually far too much for an innocent, a totally innocent man, in my opinion. He's still bizarrely obsessed with the Steele dossier, which has effectively had no impact on anything. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't get that. I can't tell if that's just him being a child or if there's something deeper going on and he's, he's exhibiting a consciousness of guilt. But the reality is Trump in the next four years, with no Russia investigation hanging over his head, no concern about re-election, he doesn't give a crap about the Republican Party winning in a, a second midterm election, there is nothing, there is nothing restricting him. And you're going to give a child with tyrannical tendencies, the strongest military in the world, with nuclear weapons, and no restrictions? And all those adults that were with him at the beginning of his administration that people took comfort in, oh, he's got adults around him. He's got a good cabinet. He's got good advisors. They'll keep him in check. They're all gone. They're all gone. Can you imagine what his cabinet is going to look like in a second term? I mean, Alex Jones, as defense secretary, is going to seem like normal. That's where we're headed with this. So can we please, which... Glenn clearly is doing. Can we please not evaluate what a second term for Trump would be like based solely on what the first term is? Yeah, so far we've survived this pretty well. Somehow the economy has survived pretty well despite Trump's best efforts. Somehow we haven't had a massive international crisis despite him sucking up to dictators and tyrants. We haven't had a terrorist attack internally. I, and, and there are some good things that his administration have, has done. I'll fully acknowledge that. And I like the judges. I get it. I don't like the unpaid for tax cut. But you cannot view Trump in reelection through the prism of just the first four years. And so I wrote that today. I was very conflicted about doing it, but I felt like there has to be a line in the sand here. And I also know that because Glenn and I have been associated with each other fairly publicly, uh, that there are a lot of people who would want me to express an opinion about it. So so I did so. So for whatever that's worth, uh, check it out at Mediaite. You can Google it. And like I said, find it at either my Twitter feed or Individual One Pod. Now, along those uh, lines, with regard to this idea of a second term for Donald Trump, it's always important to remember that the Trump presidency, above all else, is a reality show. That's what it is. This is a reality show. Trump thinks of it as a reality show. So think of this in terms of a reality show. The first couple of seasons are always going to be exciting because there's lots of plot lines that haven't been examined yet. 
Well, by season six, seven, and eight, what what's he going to be able to come up with as a good plot line? A bored Donald Trump as president is going to be an incredibly dangerous thing. And, and, you know, as far as the reality show aspect of this is concerned, we're seeing this in full, full blaze over the last couple of days where Trump is now finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He finally has gone after George Conway. George Conway, the husband of his, Trump's communications director, Kellyanne Conway. Now, in any other presidency, this this alone would cause uh, a, a huge portion of a president's base to go, what the hell is going on here? Because this is George Conway, a conservative, a, married to one of Trump's biggest supporters. At one point, you know, his campaign manager, now she, I, I think her official title is communications director, but, you know, she's clearly a close aide to the president, hugely supportive of the president. George Conway was offered a job in the Department of Justice and turned it down after Jim Comey was fired, like three weeks later. And there's a direct correlation to why that happened, because Conway started to realize, wait a minute, uh, there's something really strange going on here, and I don't want to be part of this. And, And slowly but surely, Conway on Twitter has been criticizing Trump. It's amazing that it's taken this long. For, for Trump to respond. But finally, over the last day or so, it's been a full-on war on Twitter with George Conway accusing Trump of having narcissistic personality disorder and Trump accusing Conway of being a horrible husband and a loser. <laughs> this is the president of the United States talking about the husband of one of his closest aides who he offered a job to. It's just flat-out ridiculous. But this is where we are. This is where we are. And, of course, Trump's M.O. in responding here is so important to understand. Because here is Trump. He always does this. Whenever anyone turns on him who used to be in his corner, I don't know this guy. He's a loser. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. He sucked up to me for a job. It's always a lie. It's a flat-out lie. There is an enormous paper record proving that what Trump is saying about George Conway is a lie. Yeah, Conway did compliment Trump at the very beginning of his presidency in a polite way, especially as he was turning down a job in the Department of Justice, all right? This is not a situation where George Conway is pissed off. Think about it logically, folks. First of all, the paper trail disputes all this, but it, his own wife is his one of his top aides. It's not like he, he has a huge incentive to bring down Donald Trump out of revenge for him having turned down a job in the Department of Justice. Otherwise, there would be this thing called a divorce or at least a separation. Yet there's no indication of that whatsoever. None. There are even those who speculate, and I I don't know, this seems to go a little too far, but there are people who speculate that Conway is actually voicing Kellyanne Conway's own objections to Trump in a way that she can't get away with. And by the way, why hasn't Trump fired Kellyanne Conway? I mean, none of this makes any damn sense. And, uh, and it is indicative, and, and, and George Conway has said this numerous times on Twitter, which I find to be uh, hilarious, is, which is that Trump, by focusing attention on this, has, has given Conway a far greater platform and brought more attention to his his most recent claim about Trump, which is that he is someone who suffers from narcissistic personality disorder, which I agree with, which is why he's uniquely unqualified to be the leader of the free world. Now, you could argue that Barack Obama suffered from a similar disorder, but nowhere near to the degree of, of Donald Trump. And Conway said an, an, another interesting thing, uh, you know, when he was called, a, uh, a, I think it was, I can't remember if it was in response to 
whether or not he's a loser or whether or not uh, he's a bad husband, the, the husband from hell. I can't remember what it was, but Conway responded, it's better to be referred to that than as individual one. <laughs> For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. <laughs> I can never get enough of Michael Cohen's statement on that. And that even, even if this wasn't the individual one podcast, I would probably feel that way. Right, now, a couple of things that certainly go into this idea that Democrats are playing right into Trump's hands and scaring the living daylights out of people like Glenn Beck in a way that is rational. I'm not disputing the Democrats are allowing people to rationalize that, oh, my God, the alternative to Trump is going to be so much worse. So therefore, we must even you know, as much as we have to hold our noses, we must make sure that Trump is reelected. I mean, it is rather hilarious that the the largest objection they have to Trump is that he's destroying all of our norms, which he is. And Democrats seem to be going after a lot of our norms. Uh, and, and specifically, even just with regard to voting, Nancy Pelosi coming out in favor of lowering the voting age to 16. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, come on. Are you serious? Are you serious? Have you met any 16 year olds? Have you met any 60? I mean, you know, I, I know I'm going to sound old and crotchety at almost 52 years old. But, uh, you know, frankly, I'm not sure uh, 29 year olds ought to be able to vote. And um, and and that's, I think, becoming more and more evident. I mean, I, I really do believe having dealt with the, a lot of the younger generation who are now you know, starting to become members of the media. I mean, these people have no ability to do critical thinking, no ability to use logic. They're incredibly PC. They're all virtue signalers. This is the way they've been taught. So I'm not comfortable, <laughs> as, as, as sad as it sounds, you know, all, all the way up to 30. I, I, I'm questioning whether or not you, have the, you should have the ability to vote. But 16, I mean, that's, that's insane. And it's obviously because all 16-year-olds would be Democrats. <laughs> I mean, that's the way you are. That's the way you're built, uh, especially in this day and age when our entire academic institutions are basically devoted into creating you to think like a liberal, as if that might not be an oxymoron, which I think it is. And then there's Elizabeth Warren, and this really uh, gets me agitated. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is not going to be the Democratic presidential nominee because Democrats have seen her get her, her, her uh, head knocked off by Donald Trump over this whole uh, Native American Indian uh, DNA situation. They've seen the movie already. They don't want to see a, a sequel. And I think they're smart enough to realize she ain't it. But she got an enormous amount of publicity over the last uh, day or so because she has called for an end to the Electoral College. An end to the Electoral College. It's just flat out ridiculous. All right. Um, look, uh, there are a lot of flaws with the Electoral College. I get that, for instance, in 2016, I get why liberals are pissed that the person who had the most votes nationwide, Hillary Clinton, lost because of the Electoral College. She had about three million more votes than Donald Trump. However, there are important reasons why the electrical, the electrical, <laughs> the electoral college, the electoral college is paramount and by far the best possible way to pick a president. Now, I would adjust the electoral college. I agree that, that we ought to look at how we do the electoral college because it is, especially in the modern era, it makes no sense to me why we don't just do this via congressional districts rather than via states. And by the way, two states, Maine and Nebraska, already do it this way. This is the way every state should do it. And, and just to be clear, you know, for those who don't remember or don't know, I mean, the Electoral College is, is the, number, the way that we choose our president because each state is given a certain number of votes based upon their number of congressional districts plus their two U.S. senators. And so there is an added weight given to the smaller states, because when you're a smaller state, you obviously you get the two extra votes because of your two U.S. senators, which each of the 50 states get. And so that does skew things towards the less 
populated states, which tend to be the more rural states, which tend to be, right now, the more Republican states. That being said, and Trump has said this, and I, I think it's one of the few things he's actually said that's true about the 2016 election. That being said, there are other huge advantages for Democrats when it comes to the Electoral College. For instance, we effectively start every presidential election with the Democratic candidate getting California, New York, and Illinois right off the bat. I don't know what the exact number is, but you're halfway to victory almost at that point. With New York, Illinois, and California, it's darn near, if not more, it's in that range uh, of halfway to victory. And and that's and, and you, those are states that the Democratic candidate in the modern era cannot lose. It is not possible. I, I mean, you know, you could put almost anybody up as the candidate and they would win those three states. That is a massive advantage. Republicans, I'm not sure. You know, there's there's a few states that are for sure. But even Texas is no longer in the 100 percent sure category for the Republican candidate. But here's here's let me tell you why the, the Electoral College can't be removed. And then let me tell you why we ought to go to the to the way that Maine and Nebraska do this. The number one reason why the Electoral College cannot be removed is that there is no way to do a recount of a close election. Okay, can we we think about what would happen, for instance, in 2000? Think about the absolute fiasco that was the 2000 election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, where it all came down to Florida— Florida is one of our largest states, and that contributed to the chaos and the insanity. But because it all came down to Florida, and Florida was ridiculously close, less than 1,000 votes at one point, after the, all the votes were initially tabulated, and then they started this recount, that was beyond a mess. And it was a borderline, con- I don't even know if it was a borderline constitutional crisis. It was a constitutional crisis. If the Supreme Court had not stepped in to stop an illegal voter count in Florida, and I don't want to get into all the details about why that was the case, but I strongly believe that the Supreme Court acted not just correctly under the law, but correctly with regard to stopping what would have been total chaos Total chaos because you have different counties voting vote, they're counting votes in different ways. That would have been a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, blah, blah, blah. Think about the insanity that that was, where we barely avoided a massive constitutional crisis and possible catastrophe. And now take that and put it in every single state every single county, every single municipality. I'm sorry, we would not survive that as a country. First of all, you couldn't possibly get it done in time. I mean, because you're counting every single vote over all 50 states and then recounting them? I mean, if you have a, let's begin, let's say you have an election as close as 2000, where you're within, you know, less than a point of each other, much less than a point of each other. You then have to recount every single vote. And it's not even logistically possible to do it in a fair way because, as I've already stated, every municipality does their voting in a different way. So you would have to federalize all of our elections, which is a logistical impossibility. Because if you don't federalize them, then you're going to have an inherent situation where votes are counted differently. They're they're, they're tabulated differently. They're counted differently. When there's, for instance, in Florida with the hanging chads, there's a different standard for what a vote is. You can't do that in a national election. It's not possible. Because now now you've got well over 100 million votes over 50 states, and unless you federalize it, you can't have a a common standard. So you're inviting 
a nightmare and in a highly divided country, you're effectively ensuring not just a constitutional crisis, a constitutional catastrophe. Now, what frustrates me about this is that there's a very good solution. You just go to the way Maine and Nebraska do it, which is each congressional district gets one vote, one vote for their particular presidential candidate. And then you take the two senatorial votes and you give those two votes to whomever the state has voted for as a whole. It's actually very simple. And what's interesting about this is, and I remember in 2000, in 2000, I did the calculations on this. I don't know why I must have had a lot of time on my hands in 2000, (laughs) but I was curious. I thought, okay, how would this have turned out if we went district by district, each congressional district got one electoral college vote, and we gave the two extra votes to whoever won the state? And guess what would have happened? The results of Bush versus Gore would have been exactly the same. I believe it was even to like to within one electoral college vote. Exactly the same. So you're not fundamentally altering the landscape in favor of one party or the other. Frankly, Democrats should love this idea because we just had an election based upon congressional districts. And guess who won? Democrats won in a huge way. So now I don't know. That doesn't include the two votes each for which, you know, which which uh, candidate would win the state. That probably would have made it closer for the Republican side because Republicans win more states because they they get the uh, rural rural states and the smaller states. So, you know, generally Republicans win about 30 of the 50 states. It's just a matter of which ones they are. And Trump got super lucky because he happened to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Without those, all of which were very, very close, he doesn't win the Electoral College. But why won't we go to Nebraska and Maine's way of doing the Electoral College? We won't do that because, oh, I remember, because Democrats don't want to lose all those votes in California and New York and Illinois. Because if we did it that way, their margins out of those three states would all of a sudden shrink significantly. Because while there aren't that many, and here in California, there aren't nearly as many as there used to be even just a few years ago, there are at least a few Republican districts. So instead of getting all the votes out of California and all the votes out of Illinois and all the votes out of New York, they're just going to get most of them. And those margins being cut down, they're afraid they're going to hurt them in the overall total. And so no one has the balls to go ahead and be the first one to do it. Now, if California did it, if, you know, which they would never do it unilaterally because, although you know what? We're now almost to the point with so few Republicans, it is theoretically possible that they might do it because they're not giving up that much of an advantage. But the the reality is, the political reality is that if California, the largest uh, populated state, went first, then others would probably follow. But no one's going to do that. So there's logistically, it's almost impossible to implement and force all the states to go and do it the same way as Nebraska and Maine do it. But that's the way we should do it. And frankly, that would actually alleviate our recount problem because no one state would matter that much. It would only be worth two electoral college votes. And no one district would be that important because they would be only worth one vote too. So it would only be under a circumstance where somehow you had, you had, uh, which is you know statistically mind blowing, where the the two uh, candidates came within one or two electoral college votes of each other, which is again almost statistically impossible. Then you would have a a, a very difficult situation, but it still wouldn't be as difficult as recounting an entire nationwide popular vote. So that's why Elizabeth Warren's proposal is just flat out dumb uh, and and hopefully will never happen. Now, in our remaining moments, I want to uh, at least mention a remarkable New York Times story about Donald Trump and Deutsche Bank and his net worth, because um, 
I, my fundamental belief about Donald Trump springs from the reality that his entire persona is a fraud. I've always felt you need to go back to the beginning. And the beginning of Donald Trump is, is he really super rich? And when you realize that he's not super rich at all, that everything about him is is seen through a very different prism. And the amount of information we have learned in the last couple of years that substantiates my theory about Trump has been voluminous. And by the way, my theory on Trump was not just based on a, a feeling. As I've mentioned several times, I don't know if I've gone through it in great detail on this particular uh, podcast, but I have on my other podcasts and in my writings. My father dealt with Donald Trump at a very critical time in Donald Trump's corporate career in the late 80s and the early 90s. He was the one who, against his own better judgment, forced by his boss, gave Donald Trump the loan for his Trump princess yacht, which he purchased from a Saudi Arabian arms dealer, as well as how he got Mar-a-Lago. And neither of those loans, as my father suspected, were ever repaid because Trump couldn't afford them to begin with. And when the market crashed in the early 90s, there were all these banks that were stiffed by Trump got together and there was a, a, a very critical meeting. It was the most important moment of Donald Trump's entire business career. They got all together and with Trump, apparently, by all accounts, you know, basically slumped in the corner like a, a little boy in detention or timeout. These banks got together and decided whether or not Donald Trump was going to live or die financially. And they decided after this meeting to let him live because his brand was more value to them if he was alive, figuratively, than if he was dead. They even gave him an allowance of several hundred thousand dollars a month so he could still pretend to be rich. All right. So that was always my the backdrop of my belief about Donald Trump's lack of of enormous wealth. So the New York Times two days ago, drops this, what should be a bombshell story. In a, in a rational world, this is all we would be talking about. And unfortunately, it's already old news and made no impact. Because after all, it's the New York Times and they're fake news. Fake news, right? Even though, you know, and look, I'm, I'm no fan of the New York Times, but this story was exceedingly well substantiated. Here's the story. Back in 2005, 2005, okay, it's important to point out, the economy is good in 2005. Donald Trump wants a loan, a huge loan. He can't get it from anyone else but Deutsche Bank, which has a long history of misconduct and shady business practices. And they're the only ones that will deal with him because of what I just told you, Trump's history of not paying off his loans. So in the process of trying to get this loan, he claims his net worth to be three billion dollars. Now, anybody who knew anything about Donald Trump, I mean, you don't go from being flat broke in the early 90s to being worth three billion dollars, basically at most 12 years later, without having invented anything of any notoriety, substance. It's not like he, you know, reinvented the wheel or put all his money in Microsoft or whatever. I mean, that didn't happen. So I'm sure that the Deutsche Bank, when they got this uh, estimate from Trump that he was worth $3 billion, their initial reaction was... So they investigated it, Deutsche Bank did. And what they found was, yeah, he wasn't worth $3 billion. He wasn't worth $2 billion. He wasn't worth a billion. He was worth, at most... A little less than $800 million. Now, I realize to most people that sounds like a, a whole hell of a lot of money. And it is, but it's nowhere near putting you in the top echelon of business tycoons to where you could use that uh, achievement as a credential for running for president, especially when you consider you got as inheritance several mil hundred million dollars, by the way, in, an, in a tax avoidance scheme by Fred Trump. So by any measure, Trump, if he's only worth $788 million in 2005, he, he would have been just as well off putting his inheritance in um, 
you know, basically a, a bond fund for heaven's sakes. I mean, anything, anything other than a savings account, he would have done better than that. And again, it's important to point out this is before the 2007-2008 collapse of the real estate market. So think about how little Trump must have been worth in 2009, right? I mean, his whole, his, all of his assets are wrapped up in real estate. Real estate implodes in 2008, 2009. So now we got to be talking, what, $300, $400 million? Which then gets me to one of my biggest questions. And, I, and I, I, my guess is we're never going to find this out because I, I, I have no indication that Robert Mueller is going deeply into this area. But I will forever be mystified and highly skeptical of how it is that Donald Trump, not worth all that much before the real estate collapse, right after the real estate collapse, now granted there was some recovery, but we're talking 2011 to 2014. So right, so, so we're starting to see a recovery in the real estate market, but he's also starting to think about running for president. How does Donald Trump, that Donald Trump, the king of debt, as he refers to himself, how does he start using massive amounts of cash to buy golf courses, specifically Doral and Turnberry? That is something that does not make any sense to me. It goes against his own M.O. And where is he getting the cash from? Where is it coming from? You also have to remember, in 2014, when one of these major transactions happened, he has to be thinking he's going to run for president. All The evidence is overwhelming. He's already thinking he's going to run for president. If you're running for president, especially as an outsider, what's the number one thing you need? You need cash. And here, a guy who's not that rich who is the king of debt, is suddenly buying high-profile golf properties. And let's be clear, Tiger Woods uh, is on the downturn. Golf is in big trouble. This is not like golf is uh, a hot commodity at this point. All of a sudden, he's buying big-time golf courses way outside his normal reach. He has never purchased anything close to a Doral or a Turnberry before. Turnberry is a legendary golf course. Doral, just below that. And all of a sudden, he's using, not all, but massive amounts of cash, some debt, to buy these. How is that happening? Now, of course, obviously, the speculation is, and this is not idle speculation, it's about Russian money, right? I mean, that, that would make some sense. Now, there's been rumors about that. There's been some reporting by golf writers have suggested that there's evidence of this. The Trump sons themselves have made comments prior to the election that are consistent with the idea that Russian money was coming into these golf courses and to the golf their golf business. That, of course, becomes exceedingly fishy when you consider that, obviously, Russia, uh, to some extent at least, tried to help Donald Trump get elected. And then, of course, it, it also brings us back to my favorite statement that is related to the Russian investigation, which doesn't get nearly enough attention. And that is the 2016 interview that the then campaign chairman for Donald Trump, Paul Manafort, now heading to prison for several years uh, on charges that are not directly related to a conspiracy with Russia, which I find to be important and interesting. But that being said, here he was in 2016 uh, being asked by Nora O'Donnell on CBS about Donald Trump's financial connections to Russian oligarchs. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. <laughs> I could literally listen to that all day long. I could listen. That is the most obvious lie, especially even before we knew he was a crook and going to prison and for lying, among other things, that uh, you could possibly imagine. 
I mean, just for the record, and mostly because I enjoy it, I mean, here it was Paul Manafort again with, with the most obviously deceitful denial that I've ever heard in my entire adult life. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. <laughs> so again, where is this cash coming from? Where is it coming from? I, I, I wish we would get an answer to that. Because it doesn't add up. When things don't add up, I get very, very skeptical. That being said, I do find it interesting that the focus is shifting away from the Trump critics, among the Trump critics. The focus is shifting away from Mueller and towards the Southern District of New York, away from Russian collusion and more towards, uh, you know, these financial potential financial crimes. That's where they're pinning all their hopes. and And frankly, I think a lot of them are starting to look like Linus in the pumpkin patch waiting for the great pumpkin before Halloween. Because I, I am not convinced at all and have not been for quite a while that Robert Mueller is suddenly going to come forward with this uh, great nuclear weapon that's going to change everything. Whether he can't prove it or if it didn't happen, I don't know. But I just don't see that happening. And I'm not even sure we're ever even going to see the full Mueller report. I, I think that there might be several loopholes here where, you know, by the only thing we're going to eventually, at best case, we might see Mueller testify but that's going to be so far down the road that the Mueller report will already be perceived, rightly or wrongly, as a vindication of Trump. And we're already too far down the calendar for any of this to matter. So I am not in any way, shape or form and have been for quite a while. I've been trying to say this in every venue I can. Robert Mueller is not going to end Donald Trump's presidency, rightly or wrongly. This this week, there was a poll out by USA Today that indicated, and Trump touted this erroneously, in my opinion, but the the poll did say that 50% of the American public described the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt, which is just absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. And depressing. It's also not really true. I, I was skeptical of that the moment I heard it. And I, you know, having been a former polling consultant, I know something about polls and how the question you ask is everything. It, in my opinion, I immediately knew, wait a minute, there's a problem with that question. And so I searched online for the question, and indeed there was. There were three problems with that question. Number one, the question started with, the President of the United States says this is reality, which impacts a lot of people, especially Trump fans. And then it combined the idea of Mueller being... Uh, engaged in a witch hunt and Trump being the focus of more investigations because of his politics. That is a very loaded, convoluted leading question. And there was also a problem with the sample of this particular poll. It was way, way weighted towards conservatives and against liberals. That being said, even if it's 40%, which it probably is, I think the real number there is probably 35, 40% because that's more in line with what the Trump cult is. And, you know, of course, you know, when we talk about the Trump cult, it wouldn't be an episode of the Individual One podcast without playing this clip. I love the poorly educated. I mean, so, you know, but it's still a depressing number and it's still a significant number because if if that large portion of the population believes that the Mueller investigation wrongly is a witch hunt, then it doesn't matter what he's going to say because no one's going to believe any of it. And when you look at the, the lack of convictions and conspiracy, as well as the very light sentencing for Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, and Mike Flynn, who should be at the heart of any conspiracy with Russia, and no indictments of Jared Kushner or Donald Trump Jr., who would be very vulnerable to indictment because they're not president of the United States if there was, in fact, this conspiracy. I don't see how you get there from here, because none of that would be happening if Mueller was about to come down with this nuclear weapon proving full-on collusion between the Trump campaign and and Russia. And so with that, uh, I'm going to um, I'm going to I'm going to knock down our, our already paltry percentage as we end each uh, episode of the Image One podcast with the percentages of the chances of Trump not finishing his first term in office and those of him being reelected. I'm going to knock it down all the way to five percent now, uh, a five percent chance that Donald Trump does not finish his uh, first term in office. I'll continue to keep the re-election percentage at 40 percent, largely because we're in a holding pattern trying to figure out what Joe Biden is going to do. Not that Joe Biden is a panacea or that he would be remotely assured of winning the Democratic nomination. In fact, you know, I, I, I'm beginning to think he would not win 
the Democratic nomination and that he himself is worried about this. And he's starting to think about all sorts of possible uh, uh, you know, tactics, like, for instance, picking a vice presidential nominee. For instance, there's been talk of him picking Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams, who lost the African-American female who lost the governor's race in Georgia and claims effectively that she didn't really lose it. That, to me, would be a mistake. Uh, that's a, a gimmick. It's a sign of weakness. Uh, and if he does that right off the bat, it might have a short term positive effect for him with regard to the black vote. But long term, uh, that would be a problem for Joe Biden. Uh, but we're going to keep that at 40 percent. So five percent chance that uh, Trump does not uh, finish his first term in office, 40 percent chance that he is reelected. And with that, that'll do it for this edition of the Individual One podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share the show via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. And until Sunday morning or afternoon, thereabouts, Los Angeles, California time, that's the Individual One podcast. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.